This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. What's up, Ryan? No, that's not it. I don't want to have a signature sign on. It, you I have one. But I don't. People it's are mad when you don't do it. There, No one is mad when I don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um. So are you facing an inquiry at work? What do you mean? Like, are you in trouble? Um, not yet. Although in about an hour, I might be in trouble. Okay. So this is preemptive bringing your boss on to our boss um, (laughs) to talk. It it is. So our special guest today is Suzanne Hollier. She is the Oakland County friend of the court, the Oakland County friend of the court, and also past president of the friend of the court association not or shit. Yes. I got yep. that right. Yes. Um, so everybody, everybody in the audience, please welcome Suzanne Hollier. Thank you. Long time listener. First time caller. <laughs> <laughs> um, Perfect. And Suzanne, I will just be very transparent. So the reason we asked you to join us today is because I'm in trouble at work. Ryan's in oh. trouble again at no. work. Um, <laughs> and there seems to be a lot of confusion, even amongst long-term family law practitioners, about what exactly friend of the court's role is and what functions we serve and how that impacts um, the ongoing circuit court kind of stuff. And so I thought maybe we could get some clarity on that. And because you not only run our office, which is a huge friend of the court office by front of the court office standards. We're a big county and we have um, significant resources and significant caseload um, and smaller counties may be different, but because you've been involved on a statewide level too, um, you may have some insight into how smaller counties operate, what they do and don't have. So I thought maybe we would dig into that a little bit um, and maybe make some sense out of it for my aunt in South Carolina and our three other listeners. (laughs) Um, Well, it's true that a lot of the um, confusion comes from us all operating our offices in different ways. So some of the counties, for example, referees aren't even part of the front of the court, although they handle front of the court matters like any other uh, judicial officer, you know, may a judge or whatever. Um, but the front of the court might not even work, you know, as an employee of the front of the court. So that maybe makes it the distinction between a referee staff person and a um, friend of the court staff person more easy to understand for maybe lawyers who are confused about the different roles that all the staff people play. But I mean, maybe, maybe not, maybe that's not the source of the confusion, but um, it's true that the um, referees are are, um, subject to the same ethics requirements as judges. Um, They're appointed officially by the chief judge in every county, so that shouldn't be confusing to anybody. Uh, And they conduct hearings that are, you know, just like a hearing a judge would conduct on the record. Um, Referees wear robes in our county, but not all counties. It's not a requirement, nor is it prohibited. So it 
is up to the county to figure out what feels appropriate. Where the staff members that work here all kind of fill different roles, all found in statute, but sometimes those staff members might be appearing and presenting testimony and in, in evidence in front of a referee. But in other ways offices are set up, the staff people might just send reports to the court. Um, outlining their investigation and what their recommendation is regarding a specific matter that may have been referred to them. And in other counties, the referral to these staff people might be automatic as, as a case is started. Uh, and that's called conciliation or facilitative information gathering conference is what we're trying to get everybody, or facilitative information gathering FIG for short is what everybody's trying to get people to call it. And that's in some counties, it was kind of a compromise reached with SCAO and the private bar and friends of the court that allows these staff people who are not hearing officers to go in, investigate, meet with parties, attempt some alternative dispute resolution. And then ultimately when everybody leaves for the day, there's a court order in place um, that can be then enforced and the court can kind of take it from there. So, so they're acting like in a- So many options, so many yeah. different ways of setting up an office. So is the the fig because we don't do fig proper in Oakland County, right? right? right. Um, but my understanding is it's the front of the court personnel are acting in a, a mediation sort of capacity to try and get early temporary orders entered that just kind of like stick the the finger in the hole of of whatever. Um, boy, we're gonna have to work on that um, <laughs> to keep things sort of. <laughs> in check, I guess, on a temporary basis until permanent orders or a judgment is entered. Yeah, and to really get some early support started and an early framework for the family about how parenting time is going to look. The objection to some practitioners, like we don't do this in Oakland, um, we can, we do an early intervention conference with the referees and we try to get a handle on where everybody is. The case can be referred for an investigation and recommendation, but it, do it doesn't always happen. And so when we considered FIGS, do we want to jump in on all divorces all the time before they really are even getting started? And we, our sense is that's not really what our bar here would feel comfortable with. So, but in other counties, it is very routine. Um, Jackson is one, Ingham is one, where all cases start with somebody who takes a look and applies some uh, principles found in the law and everybody leaves with the temporary order. Whether they want it or not. Right, right. Okay. Um, so let me back up a little bit because my perspective coming in from private practice was probably similar to Ryan's in that I didn't have a ton of understanding of all of the inner workings of friend of the court. Um, for my part, like if I was the attorney when the divorce was filed, I'd go to the early intervention conference, usually settle it by entering a consent judgment and then like washed my hands of the thing and was done. So a lot of the things that we do um, weren't super clear to me, but my perception now is there's sort of um, three branches which, of friend of the court. And one is an enforcement branch that sort of deals with not just support, but also parenting time and custody enforcement. Um, and 
sort of mediation or investigation component where things can be referred for investigations and recommendations by FOC personnel with respect to support and or parenting time in custody, and then a quasi-judicial sort of component where that's where the referees get involved in our holding hearings. Is that completely inaccurate? I know I've been working here for a while, but I like that kind of makes sense to me from a private practitioner standpoint that there are sort of three separate and not necessarily co-equal, but three separate areas that we kind of branch off into. Yes, I have not thought about it that way before. I've more thought about it in terms of like subject matter of what we handle, you know, support, custody and parenting time, domicile. But yeah, I think that's a fair way to break down like the categories of work that we do. And to be clear, the referees aren't investigators. And I think that there seems to be a lot of confusion that somehow we are investigating because we're recommending but we're not. We are holding formal hearings, taking evidence under the court rules, following the rules of evidence, yada, yada, yada. But someone who's doing an investigation is doing a completely different process. And it's not appropriate for the referee to be doing that process. Fair statement? Yes, fair statement. And I think it might be confusing because we you do sit on a bench where you have access to the computer system that all the front of the court staff people have access to. So I think it can be confusing to practitioners. Like, what are they doing? Can't you just look into your magic box and find out where mom's working or where dad's taking the kids, because your magic computer will just show you that. And the truth is, um, in some counties, and please don't get any ideas about this, but in some counties, they don't give the referees access to MISIS, and they instead have front of the court staff people come and present evidence about what the MISIS computer system has, has in it. And that just seems like such a huge waste of resources, because you can in my opinion, take judicial notice of what's in there. As long as you're not, and you know, you all have good judgment, but I think that there are lines that could be crossed if you went out and did like self-help investigations. You know what I mean? Start Googling somebody and looking at their Facebook and then using that evidence that you track down on your own. That's not your role. But it is, the the waters are muddied by the fact that you are sitting, you know, the judges aren't, the judges aren't sitting there with mice on their computer, business objects. So you do have the ability to have some information presented to you already um, when somebody comes in for that enforcement hearing, just because it's right there in the court records. Um, so that, I think, is like a little bit of a gray, confusing area for um, practitioners and the public, and just because it's handled differently in different offices. Well, and I do get invited to call people's witnesses or employers that they haven't bothered to bring in as a witness. Like, well, here's their number. You can call them. And I'm like, mm, not really my job. Like, I'm not going to be saying like, who would I like to hear from? Do you have their number? I'll give them a call on the fly and we'll do like a pop quiz on the record. Like, I'm not doing that. And, and that isn't because that's not what we don't want to do. It's because I don't think the canons allow us to like i just want to make it clear like we're not like sitting there like oh i'm not gonna bother doing that because i'm trying to be difficult it's just we're not investigators and it wouldn't be pro just like the same as a judge won't pick up the phone and just start calling people 
Right. We can't do that. But when you're conducting, you know, 30 or whatever show cause hearings to enforce support order in a day, it makes sense that you have printouts there and you can just say, like, clearly you haven't been paying. What's the story? You know, and so that's, in my view, different than going out and like conducting an investigation, which is up to the staff person to do, not you. Right. Um. So. Our, the way our office is set up is we have um, mental health professionals, one per referee or one per referee's docket, I guess, um, who do investigations and recommendations with respect to custody and parenting time. What happens to those recommendations once they make them once they do like a, a written report and a recommendation with respect to custody and parenting time does it just sit in the file who can use it um what happens to those so here it goes to the parties and they can ask the court to adopt it or they can object to it and have a hearing um nothing would happen to it automatically uh but in some counties like the, those counties that are conducting figs they uh might become a court order. So they the parties might not agree on the specific details of how their custody and parenting time is going to work. And the front of the court staff person is still going to issue uh, order, which of course is subject to, to judicial review. Um, I was on the committee several years ago that SCAO had when attorneys were kind of raising the alarm bells about these types of hearings, which were being called conciliations at the time. And there were um, they were sharing horror stories, which I didn't independently investigate. So I don't know, you know, if they're true or not, but that um, basically like high school students were conducting these and that their own that they had like these just default cookie cutter uh, formulas that they would just plug in like your dad, you get every other weekend and these holidays and uh, mom is going to have all the rest of the days and this is what support's going to be. That's a formula. So that's easy enough. But that the people there, it was two real main concerns. One, that the people doing these conferences were not adequately trained and didn't have the qualifications needed. So therefore, their own personal biases might be coming through. And two, just like this kind of strong arming of people who may or may not be represented into agreements without their attorneys being present. So um, we already had uh, a requirement that all of our people doing that have to have master's degrees, and they all are very experienced when they come to us. So SCAO set some qualifications that had to be applied statewide so that anybody doing that can't just be like a high school student. And even our people who do that work now have to undergo training, regular training every year where they do practice like alternative dispute resolution and are observed and get feedback from one of their colleagues. So that's new um, and that's statewide. And we have to have plans that the Supreme Court approves about how we're doing these, whatever it is we're doing in our county. And so if anybody, an attorney is ever confused about going to a new county and how is it gonna work there, you can go online and every single county has a local administrative order explaining how their dispute resolution works in that county. And this is the dispute resolution that's handled by those individuals who are not the referees. Okay, clear enough. Yeah. So, um, with respect to the enforcement stuff, 
we enforce child support. I think that's relatively clear, although it might not be clear again what the referee's role is in that. I I mean, really, from my point of view, there's a lot of enforcement stuff that happens before I would ever see it. And the only time I would really see it is on a show cause where there's already determined that there's an arrearage of some sort, usually, um, and <coughs> it's set for a hearing with me. And then, you know, I have 30 or so to deal with in an afternoon or in a morning if you're Ryan. Um, but there's a lot of enforcement stuff that happens prior to that. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. And especially since COVID, we've all had to kind of re-engineer our enforcement programs on the fly because nobody wanted to be sending someone to jail for not paying child support and have them die from COVID in jail. So all of us met regularly, weekly at first, and eventually um, a couple times a month to um, talk as child support directors about what to do with this. Uh, we still obviously need our orders enforced and maybe more so like people are more dependent on child support during COVID than um, less dependent, but also, you know, there's two people in the equation. So um, what we started doing and uh, also at the same time, the federal government has kind of told us and they fund us, take a step back from contempt of court enforcement. Like this should be worst case scenario. It should be rare. Like you both, I'm sure remember when I would say you have to do at least 30 a week. Now the feds really want us to take a look and not even bring the action unless we have some evidence of some ability to pay. Now, you both know, I don't have to tell you that sometimes we don't know anything about the person. And the only way to find out is not by putting them in jail, but by bringing them in, compelling them to come and talk to us. So again, once we even bring them in, even if it's in handcuffs, we still just want information. We don't want to punish and sentence them to, you know, a certain number of days in jail. We just want them to communicate with us. And that Yes, is not the friendliest way of going about it by bringing someone in in handcuffs. So in COVID, we started a process where before we even go to show cause, we try calling, we send letters, we send text messages, payment reminder, hey, just letting you know, we missed a couple of payments here. Call us and see if we can work it out. In Oakland, we're lucky that we have a job placement office that anyone can go to at any time. They don't even need to be delinquent in support. Either parent can go and say, help me, I, I've lost my job, I need help. And we have interns who are super eager to sit down with them and help build a resume, point them to some of the websites that are used for job seeking. Sometimes military service is a good option. So they can kind of talk them through the resources that are available in the community. And only after that do we issue the, what we do in Oakland is a notice uh, compelling their attendance at an order to show cause hearing. And even after that, if they don't appear and we have to send our deputies out to get them, especially during COVID and even now, they will often arraign people on their front porch. Like they, bringing them in here is a waste of everybody's time. If they can just have a friendly conversation and just say, hey, 
we need to sort this out. There's a kid involved here. Um, often we can get rid of the warrant, get some information, which is what we really want, and start getting, uh, you know, some regular payments coming in. So it's more of a conversation. Yes, there's people we really have to chase down and our deputies have to sit outside of their house for two weeks trying to get them to come out. But that is uh, the more rare circumstance and not what we ever want to do. Fair enough. I did have a guy today ask me if deputies could come pick him up in a county that was on the other side of the state so he could be brought like an Uber that they would come and <laughs> pick him up. I declined. <laughs> yes, and getting them home can also be a difficulty when just out of compassion, sometimes the deputies are bringing people in and then just bringing them right back home because we don't need a stream of people walking down Elizabeth Lake Road. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so in addition to the support enforcement, we also do parenting time and custody enforcement, which is a little bit different. And I even think that all the referees in our office do it differently. I don't mean in 18 or 19 different ways. I just mean there's sort of a couple of avenues for doing that. And I think, Ryan, I don't, what is your custody and parenting time specialists do for enforcement? Do they set it in front of you or do they set it in front of the judge? We talk about it and really it's sort of, we take it on a case by case basis. Um, if it's somebody who's had previous enforcement with us on those issues, we'll typically send them before the judge. And if it's a first time that type of matter has been in front, then I typically will take it. Okay. Yeah. I think, I mean, most of the time, at least recently um if if on my docket we're doing a contempt hearing for parenting time or custody enforcement we've already tried to have a conversation we've already invited the parents to respond in writing and it's clear that there's not really an avenue for resolution <laughs> um so we go ahead and set it in front of the judge but we'll meet with them ahead of time if it seems like it might bear some fruit and see if we can prevent them from going to a full hearing on that issue in front of the judge. But I think in general, it's the custody and parenting time specialist who's triggering that show cause, right? Right. And the really mind-blowing thing about parenting time enforcement is that we're the only state that does it. Uh, it is not funded through our great big grant that funds the bulk of our operation that comes from the federal government. It is uh, establishing parenting time is done in a few states. Um, so Texas is one where uh, somebody who comes to the program through their version of our prosecutor's office, um, there's public assistance involved. So it triggers a referral and a case gets started. And they'll talk to the people about what, what parenting time do you see working and put that in an order. It might if they don't have an agreement, it might just say reasonable because they're not going to spend much time on it. But we're the only state that really um, promotes very specific orders and then enforces those orders. Um, the feds talk about it back and forth. I've been involved in invited to a couple of work groups, even in D.C. And I, my mind being blown by them not doing it, their mind is 10 times more blown that we do that. Yeah. They um I think it's dangerous that the 4D program should kind of stay out of making people 
interact because there could be violence, which certainly there is violence some of the time. But, you know, I guess my feeling having grown up in this program is the benefits are uh, so far outweigh, you know, most of the people are most of the children which that's why we are all in this business. Most of the children are going to benefit by having two parents involved and not be harmed by it. So it's really a value that we hold very dear in Michigan, but we're alone in that. So, so in yeah. The, and it, in those states where they don't do that or don't handle that through the 4D program, is it then the whatever the equivalent of the circuit court judges i think in a lot of states it's their district court judge but it's the trial court then i guess that would and totally self-help nobody's going to help you file a motion to modify no one's going to help you enforce yeah you're on your own to go to court and fight it out and so still i go to national conferences and there are dads speaking and saying like this shouldn't be so hard this should not be so hard and i'm just like right on that's what I'm saying. Well, and that that's what I was going to ask was what the response is from the federal government when we talk about things. Because I'm sure Rebecca's heard it as much as I have, where you have a litigant come before you and say, oh, you're only concerned about the money. Right? Oh, somebody yeah. owes somebody they owes support. And I'm like, you don't even understand how much better service you're getting here than in any <laughs> other state in the country. And so I guess that's like, do they have an answer to that? Like when you say, hey, listen, when we're able to provide duality of services, you eliminate people just looking at front of the court and front of the court like offices as just bill collectors and as off as actual folks who are offering services to resolve a myriad of issues involving parents and their children. Yeah, um, for sure. And I do know that the current commissioner of the 4D program has fatherhood as one of her fatherhood initiatives is one of her goals, but they're still just not really hearing us on the parenting time. We used to have a waiver and we got funded for parenting time for like five years. So the child support programs around Michigan, were getting funded for all this work we do. It, it, there is a scary flip side to that in that um, what they give, they can take away and also regulate. And like, I kind of like how we do it. So I'm not sure I would want the feds to jump in and tell us, you know, they're the reason we have monthly orders. We were doing fine with our weekly orders. Our monthly orders cause all kinds of problems, but the federal government pays for this program and they feel like monthly orders are better. So I'm a little nervous about what that would mean but on the other hand like i think children across the country would benefit from having our program more actively encouraging both parents to be equal participants in raising them yeah yeah part of the very limited prep that i did for today was to go online and look at the google reviews for our office which okay. is but which so is many which of were the texts were... i was getting all weekend from rebecca were different google reviews of it's Partners been a while since office. I subjected myself to those, but uh, <laughs> I, I will say when we had the appointment system, we got great reviews on that. It oh, encouraged right. people to put a review in after they had their appointment with us, and they we 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 were like four point eight stars. <laughs> well, and but a lot of like the negative reviews that I saw were very like all they care about is getting their money, and a lot of sort of intimation that we're getting a cut of it. Yes. Like we're a bookie of some sort. And I was like, that is the strangest 
concept. Like you think we get a percentage or something like we get our tips or I don't yeah. understand. Somebody so filed false, a complaint right? with the AG last week saying we were involved in racketeering because we're getting a cut. We're not getting a cut. <laughs> if right. someone's getting a cut, I don't know who it is. It's not me. <laughs> so just so we're clear, that's false information. That's we do false not information. Get a cut. Yes. Okay. That's news, right. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Ryan, do you have any questions other than whether or not you're currently in trouble at work? I'm always currently in trouble. Ryan um, is not. He is a hero of child support. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, can we talk about the um, uh, court clinical psychologist we have in Oakland? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So us and a couple other counties employ a court clinical psychologist to do um, psychological assessments when mental health is an issue in parenting time or custody or any domestic relations case. Um, it's not required in the statute. It's not funded through Title IV-D. So um, we, many counties have some, for, uh, some sort of a court clinic that many of which were decimated back in the Great Recession. So we had a little extra stream of funding that became available and I uh, decided to use it to bring back that service for our caseload by hiring one person. We can only afford one person and just barely from this stream of money. And she does all of the court ordered assessments um, and it's supposed to really be for people who can't afford to go out and pay for an assessment. That's the idea. Um, but we'll do it no matter when the court orders it. Uh, her, it's, it's a balance. It's tricky to manage because she, being a clinician, her records are confidential and those testing materials are proprietary that um, she has to contract with this company to get them. So the actual raw data is not supposed to be floating out there. We don't even keep it in our front of the court file. She does get subpoenaed and we spend kind of an inordinate amount of time on this issue, uh, often from people who maybe could have hired their own private clinician if that's what they wanted to litigate about all the time. So it's tricky and it's an unusual service. It doesn't totally fit in any of our boxes. Um, but I know at least Macomb has one. And then, um, uh, I've heard from other friends of the court that they're considering that. So it's something different um, in our county. And just for any lawyers that are listening, please respect her time. She's one person. She writes a very thorough quality report, but it um, she you know takes her a long time. So if you uh, get one of those that uh, a court, if a court orders it, it might take some time, and you know. It um, it's it's a it doesn't totally fit in our box. Uh, so you can challenge it. We have you know due process. People can go back to court and challenge them, and they do. Um, we respect the due you know due process rights of the parents, but it's been tricky to navigate that position in our office. But incredibly valuable though that service I find, um, particularly for folks who have significant mental health concerns in their case, and there's no possible way they could afford a comprehensive psychological evaluation on their own. And it's the best we can do for the kids on that case is to get our arms around, okay, what's going on with one or both parents? 
how can we craft custody and parenting time in a way that kids can have a safe, healthy, and appropriate relationship with both parents? What kind of scaffolding needs to go around those orders to make sure that everybody's safe? And I, it's a little scary for me to think about trying to do that in the dark without that kind of information that a professional like our our psychologist can bring to the table. It's super important, I think. Somebody should pay for all of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what I else? Have 10 of her. Yeah, right. I mean, really, it'd be nice to have a lot of her or clone her, maybe. Mm. Um, what other, like, that's an unusual thing about Oakland County. And I don't have enough experience in friends of the court around the state um, to know what else is peculiar to our county, maybe that you wouldn't see in Gratiot or wouldn't see in Chippewa or. Yeah. Well, I will say that the great resignation is very real and really impacting the child support community. I was just last week at this urban jurisdictions meeting, which is a meeting of uh, child support directors in counties like ours. Uh, bigger, more urban, um, and in the Midwest. And all of them are facing hiring emergencies, especially on the frontline staff. And it seems like we're all paying about the same, about $15 an hour. And the people coming out of school right now are just not willing to work for $15 an hour in what I consider a nice career path, this has been my career path. I started very low at the bottom of the pay scale in Wayne County and have spent years enjoying this career path. But it seems to not, the career path concept, the like you're going to enjoy the next 30 years is not compelling to our young people coming into the workforce. And what is compelling uh, seems to be flexible work skills hours, um, hybrid, at least, uh, you know, remote work, in-office work, but the counties that are 100% in the office are not being successful right now. They are getting zero applicants for their positions. So we're still, I mean, we've had to, um, we're still able to get good people with some type of experience working in an office, but that number is dwindling. The number of people who are eager to come and work for $15 an hour in an office setting who have a little bit of office experience, that number is shrinking. So the labor shortage is coming to a child support office near you. Everybody's struggling with that. Well, and, 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 and the issues with, you know, the, the work from home versus in office versus hybrid, I mean, look at look at General Motors from this past weekend after dropping a 4 p.m. email on their employees that by end of the year, everyone's got to be back in three days a week. I mean, the, the blowback for them has been tremendous. And I would be stunned if there wasn't something that was probably done to maybe tweak that. Um, I still love that we do the 5 p.m. email like. None of us are attached to phones anymore. Like maybe back in the eighties when like you had to wait to get in Monday morning, but like now you're just like pissing people off for an entire weekend. It just seems like a horrible idea. Well, I think you just got to be really creative, like in terms of like allowing the flexibility and, and, 
you know, not to like pat ourselves on the back. The, the one thing that I'm most proud of being in this office was that when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, rather than sit around and, and sort of lull in uncertainty for the next year to two years, you know, we immediately started figuring out how we were going to be able to offer services to folks. And I don't feel like we really miss a beat. Like I don't, we don't, I don't at least feel like we have a backlog of, of hearings. And you're right, Ryan, we did not miss a beat. Everybody stepped up and offered their own skills and insights into how Zoom does this and how Zoom does that. For a minute, we were all using free Zoom and still getting work done. <laughs> so it was amazing. And I think we've learned so much from that. Um, so, but what I'm learning now in my role is that uh, that lifestyle is going to be here to stay or we're going to face a whole bunch of challenges recruiting and retaining employees. I had a new employee start during the pandemic who kind of told me on her first day, like, I'm not fine with ever coming back full time, just FYI. Like, I was like, oh, how bold, first day. That's a strong statement, but it was yeah, me, by the way. It's a different workforce now. Well, and I, it's amazing to me the like hard right on that because I can't think of anyone I knew who had the expectation that they would be able to work. 100% or even 60% remotely in December of 2019. And now all of a sudden that like, we've demonstrated that it's possible to be efficient and get your work done and give customer service without having to set foot inside your office. And it's a hard thing to convince people otherwise, I think at this point, and that's a struggle for uh, not just our offices, but a lot of different industries and services and every single place I go, they're short-staffed. CDS is short-staffed. Every restaurant in the world is short-staffed. Doctor's office is short-staffed. Everybody's short-staffed. Right. And we're paying $15 an hour to start and Taco Bell is like 18 and we'll pay you at the end of the first day. Yeah. So it's hard to be like, but this is a career path. Right. And we don't give out a free quesadilla. So maybe put that on the list of things we should offer is like a free quesadilla. Yeah, the remote work has been eye-opening for an old person like me. Like, I never would have, if I, I've even said this to a few people, if I had told you you could work one day a week at home five years ago, you would have thrown a parade in my honor. And now you're like, I'm not coming back three days. I will quit. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. But on the other hand, people have stepped up in remarkable ways. You know, just here, we, in many counties, we used to have the policy that you, they get so many phone calls. The case assistants get so many phone calls. The phone policy used to be, you have to empty out your voicemail twice a day because sometimes it would get full and nobody else could leave a voicemail. So you have to empty it out twice a day and return calls within two days. And we changed it and like all hands on phones. Like we don't want people coming down here because you're not picking up the phone. So pick it up. And if you miss it, immediately return the call. So we changed that. So they, the employees have given. And so if I'm now like, and also come in more, it's 
Like, why? Like, I ha- I'm going to have to give a reason. Why? And part of the reason is the people coming into the building. When you come to government, you have a right to see someone, in my opinion. Um, we've done that the whole entire time. Since COVID started, since day one, we've never closed our doors. You've always been able to come in here and resolve a bench warrant, pay cash money, or see a human being in any department. Um, but if that volume ever picks up, it hasn't so far, but if more people start lining up here needing to see someone, we ha- we are going to respond by having enough people here to see them. But well, right now, that. we've been excellent at meeting the, those demands for in-person, face-to-face. And I will say, and Ryan will hate me for saying this, but I've already told him this, so he knows it's coming. I'm um, editing this out if I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I There is something lost with doing everything over zoom there is a depersonalization of some sort it gives people license to behave like keyboard warriors even though we're looking at each other's faces there's something about being in person that de-escalates i think in a way that being over zoom does not ryan is making a face because i think he disagrees with me no i I think like everything we talk about on this podcast, you need to apply nuance and judgment to a situation because for every one of those, and you're right, there are hearings where they would be far, the the parties are far better served being in in a hearing room versus doing it on Zoom. But for every one of those, I think there's one or two that benefit from not having to take a half a day off of work to try to transport themselves up to Oakland County to sit for a hearing and, you know, lose like a day's worth. I mean, there were litigants who would literally say to me, yeah, I know I filed this motion to modify support. I didn't show because I couldn't take a half day off of work. And so they're literally losing access to the courtroom because they can't afford to be here. And I think that's a huge disservice to the community. So I, I don't disagree with you. I There are hearings that I'm going to be having in person, and I love being in the office two out of five days. Um, but I, I just, I, I don't, I think the idea of uniform policies is is where we, we maybe lose a little bit. No, I, I don't disagree with you. And I think for a lot of hearings, doing them on Zoom for a brief hearing that's not super document intensive, mm-hmm. it makes total sense to do them on Zoom. People don't have to take off work. They don't have to get a babysitter. They don't have to do all of those things. My frustration is in the, oh, did you send me a notice that told me to send in all this stuff ahead of time? And I just didn't do it. And now we have to reschedule a second date. So now we're taking a half day off work anyway, because we now had to reschedule it i that's my frustration yeah. is that and I, I will say this our order of reference for a referee hearing has for some time like it over a year had a box that can be checked to indicate the hearings in, in person because the judges had that same concern that this is too nuanced and tricky and you need to see put your eyeballs on the people so if that's the case you might get a hearing that the judge is ordering be held in person uh and I think that the Supreme Court, I know that the Supreme Court has said when that's not the case, though, presumptively, it should be remote. So at least for now, that's where we are, that we can and do have them in person. But um, there's I've seen people appearing at their uh, support modification hearing from the Home Depot break room and thought, wow, that person would have lost a half a day's pay in, in the old days. So that's awesome. 
and a striking number of people in their vehicles, which is always like, <laughs> you had nowhere else to go. You're just, okay. And pajamas and all that. Yes, I've some of the child support directors I saw last week are not just frustrated about the public appearing in their, you know, cars and pajamas, but apparently staff people, as we're now getting called back in, are not going back to wearing regular clothes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, Perfect. if you sat at home for <laughs> You sat home for a couple of years. Maybe your jammies are the only things that fit, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to correct the record on while you have this enormous audience of ours at your disposal? Uh, I don't think so. I think I really did want to talk about those um, uh, psychological assessments, but that's the main thing. And if any people are listening, non-lawyers, like work with us. Don't be scared. Anybody who walks in here voluntarily is just going to get help. Yep. So not handcuffs. Help, not handcuffs. Oh, see, that's a nice catchphrase. Nice phrase. alliteration. Maybe that'll yeah. be the title of this podcast. Oh, I love that. <laughs> help, not handcuffs. <laughs> thanks for making time to yes, hop on thank you. today and have a discussion with us. I super appreciate it. Sure, anytime.